Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 122 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I just want to say a huge thank you to my guest from the last episode, Charles H. Berry. Charles is an expert in casino security and surveillance, and he joined me to take us behind the curtain and into that world. We chatted about the evolution of casino security over the last several decades, emerging threats to casinos and hotels, and new technology being deployed to help casino security do their job and keep you safe. If you haven't listened as of yet, jump into the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out episode number 121, Eye in the Sky, an inside look at casino security on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here we go. On to the show. Are you ready for it? It's time for another world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report. This time around, I'm recapping my most recent trip to Vegas from July 25th to 27th, 2022, trip number two of the year. And being that it was just a short little two-day getaway, it makes sense that this report might be a little shorter than some of my past trip reports. I'm still going to pack it full of lots of great stuff, though, including a review of my hotel stay, some of the restaurants I checked out, a very cool tour experience I took part in, some of the changes I noticed happening in the city, and, as usual, I've got a few general observations to share as well. So, without any further ado, let's get things underway. I'm going to start off with my hotel experience. For this trip, I chose to stay at the Mirage. It's somewhere that I've stayed before, but not during the time that I've been doing the podcast. So I thought it might be fun to stay somewhere that I could share a new review for. I also wanted to stay at the Mirage, being that it might be my last opportunity to do so. For those not in the know, it was announced back in December of 2021 that MGM Resorts had sold the Mirage to the Hard Rock Corporation for a little over $1 billion. The plan is for the property to undergo a major renovation and become the new Hard Rock Las Vegas, complete with a guitar-shaped hotel tower where the iconic Mirage Volcano currently sits. There's been no official word from either MGM Resorts or Hard Rock as to when the renovations are set to begin, but I didn't want to miss a chance to stay at this iconic property before it became a construction zone. A little bit of history on the Mirage. When it opened back in 1989, the Mirage set the bar for new development in Las Vegas. Built at a cost of over $630 million, it was the world's most expensive resort. With over 3,000 rooms, it was one of the largest hotels on the planet, and it was also considered to be the first mega resort to open on the Strip. I arrived at the hotel in early afternoon, and my check-in went extremely smooth. The line was short, desk agent was super friendly, and it was probably about five minutes from the time I stepped up to the counter to when I was handed my room key. 
Side note here, MGM does offer advanced check-in that you can do via their app on your smartphone, which also allows you to use your Android or Apple device as your digital room key. They try to sell it as a time saver so you don't have to stand in line waiting to check in, but I personally still prefer to have a good old-fashioned room key in my hand. Also, the digital key requires you to have some sort of internet connection, which I noticed led to problems for a few guests as you have to scan your room key in order to access your floor in the elevator. Guess where the internet connection is almost non-existent? That's right, in the elevator. Regarding my room specifically, I'd reserved a regular old resort king room. Nothing too fancy, just the basic mirage room. I was on the 18th floor of the West Wing with a view looking north along the Strip. The pros of the room, the bed was super comfy, lots of closet and drawer space, shower was great, and overall it was in pretty good shape. The rooms are starting to show their age a little bit though with some peeling paint, markings on the nightstands and dressers, and minor wear and tear on the furniture. But based on the age of the property, that's really to be expected, and it wasn't anything too excessive. The cons? The room door is very thin, meaning you hear a lot of noise coming from the hallway, including conversations, heavy-stepping people, and the beeping noise whenever somebody else in the hallway unlocks their room. Also, unlike all the Caesars properties I've stayed at, there is no fridge standard in the room for guest use. The fridge that is in the room serves as the mini bar, and removing or moving any items will result in you being charged for that item. If you absolutely need a fridge in your room, you can reach out to guest services and they'll bring one up. However, I do believe that there is a daily charge for the use. Something else I noticed was a lack of outlets available for charging your devices. The outlets on either side of the bed were hidden behind furniture and there were no USB outlets or any kind of outlets on the nightstands. There were, however, outlets available by the desk on the other side of the room across from the bed. As for the rest of the property, I really have no complaints. The Mirage is in a great location, right next door to the Forum Shops and Treasure Island, across the street from the Venetian and Harrah's. The resort amenities are excellent, with an amazing pool, lots of shopping, and the famous Siegfried and Roy's Secret Garden. They host one of the best Cirque du Soleil shows on the Strip, that being the Beatles' love, and they have an excellent selection of restaurants appealing to pretty much every taste. One quick note about the restaurants at the Mirage, I did notice that not all of the restaurants are open every day, and some do still seem to have limited hours and close relatively early, like by 10 o'clock at night. So if you're into late night dining, you're going to want to check the hours ahead of time. Also, I just want to give a special shout out to the Center Bar at the Mirage. For the last several years that I've been going to Vegas, it's always been a spot where I've stopped and had a couple of drinks, and this trip was no different. The clientele are great, and I've enjoyed some fun conversations there, and the bartenders are awesome. Overall, I had a great experience staying at the Mirage on this trip, and I would highly recommend it to anyone with an upcoming Vegas vacation. I'm really going to miss this resort when it's gone. Next up, let's talk about one of my favorite parts of every Las Vegas trip, the food. Being that this was only a short two-night trip, I didn't really have much opportunity to sample too many places, but I still managed to get a good mix of my usual spots and try out a new restaurant as well. Starting off with the repeats, Otora Robata Sushi and Grill at the Mirage. I reviewed this place way back on episode number one of the podcast in my very first ever trip report. Once again, I went with the assorted tempura, California roll, and an old-fashioned drink. 
Food came out fast, service was great, quality was excellent, and the portion size was perfect. I should add that in addition to the sushi, sashimi, and tempura, they do have an extensive menu that includes various beef, chicken, and seafood dishes, as well as vegetarian offerings. If you're in the Mirage area and you're craving a great Asian meal, I would highly recommend this spot. Village Cafe at Ellis Island. Somehow, I always find myself back at Ellis Island for a bite to eat. Once again, I did breakfast there, going for my usual, the cinnamon vanilla French toast, side of bacon, and a coffee. Total cost, all in, with a tip, under $18. Honestly, you just cannot beat the value at Ellis Island. Anywhere on the Strip, that breakfast would have cost double that amount. Side note, if you do plan on going for breakfast, I recommend getting there somewhat early. I was in at around 9 a.m. and there was no wait, but as I was walking out just after 9.30, there were a ton of people in line and sitting and waiting for a table. If breakfast at Village Cafe isn't your thing, don't worry, they've got a huge menu for lunch and dinner as well, plus they're open 24 hours, so if you're craving prime rib at 2 a.m., you are in luck. Home plate off the strip. I reviewed this place back in the March trip report in episode number 108. Same as last time, I visited Home Plate with a bunch of friends following a show, and it was absolutely fantastic. As mentioned last time around, they're primarily a sports bar, but they're open 24 hours and have a massive menu with everything from pizza to burgers to sandwiches to steak. During my last review, I mentioned that I wanted to try the filet mignon fries on my next visit. I'm happy to say that I did, and they were awesome. Picture fresh fries with huge pieces of filet mignon on top, done the way you like, covered with an amazing demi-glaze. Drooling right now just thinking about it. Go there, try them, thank me later. And finally, Rira Irish Pub at Mandalay Bay. This is the eighth time that I've reviewed Rira on the podcast, so I'll just leave it at this. I popped in for a quick lunch. It was awesome. I had a Guinness and the sausage roll bites, and they were fantastic. You should eat at Rira on your next Vegas vacation. Now, for the new-to-me spot that I visited on this trip, unfortunately, it was a bit of a disappointing experience. I hopped a lift over to the recently reopened Palms, which, following a closure during the COVID-19 pandemic, just got back up and running at the end of April with new ownership. Along with lots of remodeling and renovating throughout the property, they've opened up a few new restaurants, and I thought I'd give one of them a shot. After cruising through the Palms website, I decided to give celebrity chef Michael Simon's Mabel's Barbecue a try. I checked out the menu online, and everything sounded great. So by the time I arrived at the restaurant, I pretty much already knew what I wanted. There was no lineup, and the place was relatively empty. There were only a few other tables occupied. So I was seated pretty much right away. I'll start off with my food and beverage. I ordered the pulled pork sandwich, a side of fries, and a drink that they call the high-octane cherry Coke, which is bourbon, amaretto, cherry liqueur, and Coca-Cola. All of this sounds great, right? And not so much. The pulled pork sandwich was bland and really not what I was expecting. Like, it had almost zero flavor to it. Plus, it was ridiculously messy and almost impossible to eat without having the innards of the sandwich go everywhere on the plate slash tray that it came out on. Also, the size of the fries seemed incredibly small compared to what you'd get at most restaurants. Most places, you wouldn't even be able to finish the side of fries by yourself, but this was about the size of what you'd get if you ordered fries somewhere like In-N-Out or Shake Shack. 
As for the drink, it actually came out warm with very little ice in it and tasted extremely watered down, like there was almost no alcohol in it at all. As for the service, it was very lacking. As I mentioned, it really wasn't busy at all in the restaurant. There were only a few other tables seated, but it was about five or ten minutes between the time I sat down and the server coming over to greet me. Because I'd already looked online and I'd been sitting for so long, I gave her my full order at that point. I'd say it took about 15 minutes for my drink to come out, and then about another 10 minutes after that for my meal to show up at the table. My server only checked in on me once while I was eating and didn't ask if I wanted another drink or needed anything else. And I should add that it wasn't just me that was noticing the lack of service. There was another small group of three who were sat down near me that actually had to flag down a server in order to get their orders taken. And that was probably about 15 minutes after they'd gotten seated at their table. And this wasn't a cheap meal by any means either. It was just over $35 before the tip, but I can honestly say it was not worth 35 bucks. I've had way better meals for way less money. And if you're in Vegas craving barbecue, there are lots of other spots that you can try that I'm sure will be much better than Mabel's at the Palms. One last quick note regarding restaurants. I've said this in my last couple of trip reports, and I'll say it again. If there is a specific place that you want to eat at that you've got your heart set on, book a reservation ahead of time. Things are very, very busy in Las Vegas, and the popular places are jammed full, even if you're traveling solo like I was. My first night in town, I tried getting into Yard House and Virgil's Barbecue along the Link Promenade. It was about 5.30 p.m. on a Monday night, and at both spots, the bar was full, and I was told it would be a 45-minute wait for a table. And as I walked along the promenade, it looked to be about the same at every restaurant, so do keep that in mind. I'm always on the lookout for cool, different things to do while I'm in Vegas, and on this trip, I decided to take in a tour that's been on my radar for a while now. The Allegiant Stadium Tour. Built at a cost of almost $2 billion, Allegiant Stadium is the second most expensive stadium in the world, and it serves as the home field for the NFL's Las Vegas Raiders and the UNLV Rebels college football team. The venue has also played host to several friendly soccer matches, college football events, large-scale concerts, and will be the site of the 2024 NFL Super Bowl Championship. The guided tour begins at the base of the Al Davis Memorial Torch with a bit of history about the team and then winds its way through the stadium over the course of about 75 minutes. Stops along the way include some of the high-end lounges, clubs, and suites, as well as several non-public spots, including the main broadcast booth, team owner Mark Davis's personal suite where he hosts VIPs on game day, the locker room belonging to the Raiders cheer team, the Raiderettes, the UNLV Rebels locker room, the press room where players, coaches, and management face the media, and of course, the crown jewel of the building, the Raiders locker room, where you'll see players' lockers and the extensive training and therapy facilities that the players have at their disposal. Following the visit to the locker room, tour attendees are taken out through the tunnel and onto the field where you can take selfies at the 50-yard line, which marks the end of the tour. All throughout the tour, between each stop, the guides share cool facts about the construction of the stadium, the stadium itself, and the history of the Las Vegas Raiders. Once the tour is done, visitors are sent in one of two directions, depending upon the package that you've purchased. If you're doing the basic guided tour, you'll exit out through the Raiders Edge, the massive Raiders merchandise shop. 
However, if you're on the upgraded drink and a view tour, you'll be sent up to the Coors Light landing surrounding the Al Davis Memorial Torch, where you'll be able to enjoy a beverage or a bite to eat, play some games, and hang out and soak in a view of the field and the Vegas Strip. Cost of the tour ranges from $59 for the basic guided tour to $89 for the drink and a view package, which not only includes the guided tour, but also gets you a drink or a snack following the tour. Honestly, this was a very cool experience. I'm not a Raiders fan and I'm not even an NFL fan, but the tour was a lot of fun and I would highly recommend it. Allegiant Stadium is located just west of the Vegas Strip on the other side of the freeway and is easily accessible by foot from Mandalay Bay. Just follow the signs in the shops in Mandalay Bay. It's about a 10-minute walk from there. You can also get there via Uber or Lyft. Spots in each tour group are limited and do tend to sell out quickly, so if this is something you absolutely want to do on your next trip, I'd suggest securing your tickets early. That being said, I decided to do the tour on a whim, and there happened to be spaces available that same day, so if you're more the spontaneous type, you just might get lucky. As an aside, if you do decide to do the Allegiant Stadium tour, keep in mind that you might not get the same experience I did. If crews are working to prepare the stadium for upcoming events, such as private functions or concerts, or there's other disruptions happening, they'll swap out inaccessible stops for other spots in the building. If that is the case, there's a warning that pops up on the website. For tour info and to book your spot, you can visit AllegiantStadium.com. As I've said in past episodes of the podcast, when it comes to Vegas, the only constant is change. And here are a few of the changes that I noticed while I was in town this time. Back at the end of January, Caesars announced that Bally's would be rebranding as the Horseshoe Las Vegas, paying tribute to the iconic and historic Binion's Horseshoe. The original plan was to begin those renovations in the spring, but when I was there in March, there was no evidence that it started as of yet. This time around, the only thing I noticed was that the large Bally's marquee sign on the corner of Las Vegas Boulevard and Flamingo Road had gone dark, and it looked like they were beginning to work on changing the sign over. Otherwise, in walking through Bally's, I didn't notice any other changes, so I'm not exactly sure what's happening with that transition. There are a couple of new restaurants up and running inside the Paris Hotel and Casino, including Nobu from world-renowned chef Nobu Matsushia, featuring new-style Japanese cuisine, and Bobby's Burgers by Bobby Flay, with burgers, fries, and milkshakes. Martha Stewart's new restaurant, The Bedford, looked to be pretty much finished and ready to open soon, and the day that I walked past, they were actually doing some filming in and around the restaurant. Along Las Vegas Boulevard, just south of Planet Hollywood, the somewhat shady Hawaiian Marketplace, which was really nothing more than a base for timeshare salespeople, booths selling overpriced trinkets, and people handing out escort trading cards, has permanently closed down. And the Cable Center Shops, a small strip mall next door to the Hawaiian Marketplace, which was home to several souvenir stores, a fake dispensary, and Fat Burger Slushy Bar, has also closed up shop. Word is that a new retail, dining, and entertainment complex will be going up on the site, with demolition and construction slated to begin in mid-August 2022. And things are coming along nicely on a new retail complex called Project 63, located across the pedestrian bridge from the Cosmopolitan to the shops at Crystal's. Project 63 sits on the former site of the doomed Harmon Hotel, which was torn down brick by brick back in 2015 after it was found to be structurally unsound and totally unrepairable. 
Project 63 has apparently already secured its first tenants and is expected to open in October of this year. All right, so I'm just about done with this trip report, but as usual, I do have a few quick observations that I wanted to share from this short little jaunt to Vegas. First off, Las Vegas has apparently become a top family vacation destination. In the seven years that I've been visiting Vegas regularly, I honestly can't ever remember seeing this many families in the city. Now, once again, I'm not going to go off on a don't bring your kids to Vegas rant because even though I personally wouldn't bring kids to Vegas, there are lots of family friendly things available to see and do. I'm just making an observation here. And I do have a bit of a theory as to why this is happening now. My understanding is that some of the more traditional family vacation spots like Disneyland and Disney World, for example, have jacked up their prices considerably in the last year or so, and it's getting very, very expensive to visit those parks. By comparison, Las Vegas has cheap accommodations, cheap meals, and cheap attractions. So for all the kidless visitors to Vegas, consider this your warning. You are going to be encountering a lot of families in Vegas, so do be ready for that. Secondly, I'm just going to come out and say it. Las Vegas has a serious homelessness situation. It always has, and homeless people have always been out and about along the Strip and in some of the surrounding areas. But on this trip in particular, I noticed what seemed to be a major increase in the homeless population in the tourist areas. For the most part, the homeless people who are out along Las Vegas Boulevard do keep to themselves and may occasionally ask people for spare change or money for food. But on this trip, I saw things that I have never seen before. People bathing in the various fountains and water features. People sleeping right on the sidewalk outside the major hotels. Aggressive behavior towards people walking by. And I even witnessed a group of people shooting up on the pedestrian bridge between the Flamingo and Caesars Palace. All of this is horrible to see. And it's incredibly sad knowing that there are people out there who are obviously in need of help. I'm not trying to be insensitive by sharing any of this information, but I just want people to be aware of the situation and be prepared for it, because if it's not something that you're used to, it can be quite a shock. If you want to help the homeless in Vegas, there are several charities and nonprofit organizations that work with this vulnerable group of people. I'll share some of those links in the show notes. And that brings to a close another world-famous Jeff Does Vegas trip report. Be sure to visit the show notes for links to everything I talked about in this episode, including the restaurants, my hotel, and the Allegiant Stadium Tour. And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas, or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production. Walker New Media.